Well, as the scene opens, the special agent is listening to a pre-recorded message. The message typically describes the diabolical plot of certain brilliant criminal minds intent on the complete destruction of the free world. And then begins the familiar refrain, <clears throat> your mission, should you choose to accept it, is, and at this point we insert the ridiculously far-fetched scenario required to thwart the well-conceived conspiracy. The message goes on to say, as always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim, or Ethan, depending on the vintage of the TV show or movie you're watching. Then we cue the theme music, Mission Impossible. Well, we the church have a mission as well. And back in June, our teaching pastor, Rick, brought our study in Matthew to a close with two messages on the Great Commission, our mission as believers, as the church, to reach and disciple people here, there, and all over the world with the good news of the gospel. This is a mission that we've all been given a part in. It's not impossible, and our Lord will never disavow us. Since June, we've been studying through the book of Colossians, a message that really comes right in the stream of the Great Commission, right in the heart of the mission of planting and growing churches and preaching Christ to the world. And in this last section of Colossians, here in chapter 4, we meet believers who are engaged in this mission, participating in it and doing so in a variety of roles. So while we can tend to run to extremes in ministry, either neglecting our disciple-making mission or overcomplicating it with overzealous self-effort, God in His grace, does want to work through us in ministry as believers, simply caring for others and for one another in the body of Christ. So for the past couple months, we've moved relatively rapidly through Colossians, something more than a, a survey, uh, but something less perhaps than the thorough treatment uh, we might give it if Rick were teaching uh, straight through it. But the elders do pray and hope that this book has been a blessing to you that the Holy Spirit has been applying its truth, its cautions, and its encouragements to your hearts. So the close of this book is much like the end of many of Paul's letters, um, as he extends greetings at, to and from many different folks in the churches, and he shares some personal details of his own life and his relationships in ministry. We can also track these relationships and timelines through the corresponding references to the same people in other letters of Paul. And these details really give the book an additional ring of authenticity as it ties it down, grounds it right here in place, in time, and with specific real live people. So let's refresh our memory in the general context of the book. Colossians, or Colossae, was a small, and, and we gather, a relatively minor city in Asia, which Paul had never visited. But he had ministered in relatively nearby Ephesus for a considerable period of time, where we believe a brother named Epaphras was probably saved. Well, Epaphras, he went on to found the church in Colossae, we believe, and Paul helped shepherd that work there in Colossae, along with other nearby churches, 
in Laodicea and Hierapolis with this correspondence. So one potential outline for the book at its highest level looks something like this. It begins with this expansive picture of the doctrine of Christ in all of His glory. It then brings, brings, uh, brings us down to, to what that means in terms of faithfulness in doctrine, in the general character of our faith and our walk. And then we see a call to faithfulness in specific God-given callings, as uh, Bill Cross shared from chapter 3 and a little bit of 4 last week. And finally, it zooms in on the faithful, the real people. And that's how it always plays out in the end, right? Not theoretical or hypothetical. The Word plays itself out in real lives. The book ultimately hones in on the people God is redeeming. And in the close of the letter, we have a list of people, not, not a bunch of people Paul's just saying hi to, but striking and personal portraits of redemption, each of them these individuals in particular life situations. Again, it's interesting to see how the letter begins with this broad, this expansive view showing us Christ, all things being created through Him and for Him, the one who holds all things together. And then the letter focuses a little bit tighter in each of these successive sections, narrowing and zooming in on specific groups of people and then on specific individuals and at the very end, as we'll see, on one individual in particular. As we take a look at each of Paul's ministry partners, we're going to take this as an opportunity this morning to have somewhat of an informal review of the book of Colossians, sort of looking over what we've learned over the past couple months, seeing how the instructions and the encouragement in the book relate directly to the lives of the people Paul's co-laborers in ministry that are mentioned. It's interesting to see how the theology and the instruction in the letter are illustrated in the lives and relationships of these ministry partners. Now, as you'll see in the list, there's not a specific verse or passage to connect with every one of these people, but there are quite a few with very relevant references, as we'll see when we grow that list. Now, this won't be a comprehensive review of the letter, but hopefully an encouraging refresher as we continue to think about this book of Colossians and how its truth should be working its way out in our life. As we look at this last group of verses, there are ten individuals mentioned, along with the group of the Laodicean believers and Paul himself. Each of these people is a picture of grace, a picture of redemption. Of course, a group of ten makes for a long sermon outline. But we're just going to let it be a list, and uh, we'll see what we can do. I'd like to encourage you to be encouraged as we take a look at this group. As we look at the roles these people play and the grace of God at work in their lives, it is possible, even likely, that you will recognize a few people who might seem familiar to you, people a little like people at Grace Bible Church, in whom the same Lord and the same Master is at work by His grace and through His Spirit. Perhaps you'll even recognize a bit of His work in you by His grace. So let's begin. Paul introduces the two men first who are bringing news from him about his circumstances, Tychicus and Onesimus. And these two men delivered the letter to the Colossians. Tychicus is described as a beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant. 
Well, he was the postman of the New Testament, our New Testament Chris Henkel here. He was the letter carrier for Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, as well as the letter to Laodicea and perhaps other correspondence that didn't rise to the canon of Scripture. He must have been a road warrior, (laughs) traveled a great deal. He may have been even sent to Titus at one point. And you'll remember Titus was in Crete, so in addition to finding himself on the high seas, he would have found himself on the highways as well, the high seas and the highways. Paul clearly trusted Tychicus and found him to be faithful. We'll call him a messenger. For this trip, however, he didn't travel alone, but Onesimus was his traveling companion. Onesimus, too, is described as a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. A faithful and beloved brother. Now, this is interesting. Do you remember in what book we also meet Onesimus? Well, Philemon. We can surmise from the context there that Onesimus was not always a model citizen. He was, in fact, a runaway slave and was most likely a thief who had stolen from his master, Philemon, a member of the church in Colossae. He had fled to Rome, and Onesimus somehow met Paul, likely as a fellow prisoner, since Paul says, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus became a believer through Paul's witness, and Paul sent him back to his master, requesting that Philemon grant him his freedom. Colossians and the letter to Philemon were written about the same time when Paul was there uh, imprisoned in Rome. In fact, seven of the people that we'll talk about in this message are also mentioned in the book of Philemon. It seems likely that Tychicus is arriving with both the letter to the Colossians in one hand and the letter to Philemon in the other, and he's accompanied by, perhaps a little sheepishly, by Onesimus. This is likely the first time that Onesimus has gone back to Colossae since his conversion. And it seems likely that Paul's description of Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother may have raised some eyebrows in Colossae, where he would have been better known as Philemon's runaway slave. But Onesimus was a new man. He had been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, it's interesting, too, that Paul devotes four somewhat lengthy verses in Colossians 4.22 through 4.1 that we looked at last week uh, to his instructions about slaves and masters as he sends this man back to Philemon. And this is worth reading again. If you look there at Colossians 3, verse 22, the instruction says, "'Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord.'" Whatever you do, work heartily, as unto the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Onesimus had doubtless learned in his imprisonment what it meant to serve the Lord Christ. He went from being a slave of Philemon's to being a bondservant of Christ. He learned to labor with sincerity of heart, not eye service, and to work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. He was a changed man, 
Paul told Philemon that his slave, whose name means useful, who was formerly useless to you, to him, was now truly useful both to him, to Philemon, and to Paul. Onesimus had become a worker. And it's interesting, too, there's instruction in Colossians 4.1 to masters. I have to wonder, every story has two sides. If perhaps Philemon had things to learn about being just and fair as a master as well, and we, we trust there was a reconciliation as Onesimus arrived back in town. So Tychicus and Onesimus traveled to Colossae. Their mission, their purpose was to tell the Colossian believers how Paul and his companions were doing and, and to encourage their hearts. The two men were to tell the Colossians about everything that was going on with Paul in Rome. You know, this in part is a model for the missionary encouragement trips that we've undertaken here at Grace Bible Church for many years, uh, undertaking trips to our missionaries around the world. Um, these have served to knit our heart together with our missionaries in ways that nothing else can. Virtual communications are really pretty amazing now, that we can FaceTime or WhatsApp with people on the other side of the world just about any time we want to, but nothing takes the place of being present with our missionaries, seeing where they live, meeting the people they're working with, walking with them for a time, giving encouragement, and returning to share that experience with the church. More than one-off short-term trips, these are designed to connect us with real continuity uh, and care and depth of relationship uh, with these ministry partners. And we, we're and using them, we've been able to build depth and continuity in our relationships, such as those with the NASA Church and each of our other missionaries in the nations where they serve. The mission of these two men is also consistent with this theme of encouragement that we see in Paul's writing in the letter they were seeking to fulfill in part Paul's prayer for the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Sounds a lot like chapter 4, verse 8, where he says that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. These two men were encouragers. And I love the synchronicity that we see here in the heart, the prayers, and the actions of Paul and his ministry companions, how, how they really were one heart and one mind. So after Tychicus and Onesimus, we have greetings from others who were with Rome, or were with Paul in Rome during his imprisonment at this writing. The first is, his name is Aristarchus. He was a Jew and a fellow prisoner in chains with Paul in Rome. And then Barnabas' cousin Mark, John Mark. This is the one about whom Barnabas and Paul had their sharp disagreement and went their separate ways. He was now apparently restored to ministry with Paul and Jesus, who is called Justice. Paul says that these men are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Men of the circumcision would identify these men as Jews, and they were apparently the only Jews who were laboring with Paul in Rome. Many of the other Jews in the Jewish leadership we're not laboring with Paul. They had been and continue to be, in fact, Paul's opponents. But these men, believers in Jesus, were a comfort or an encouragement to Paul. They were comforters. They were united in faith with Paul, just as Paul could say of the Gentiles in Colossians 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He shared the same unity of faith together with these men that we see in Colossians 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. These men were living out this united faith and grace with Paul and were one mind and heart with him. And this brought comfort to Paul in his imprisonment, the realization that not all of his countrymen, not all of his brothers were in opposition to him. And then we come to John Mark. Really love the restoration story that we find in John Mark. Ministry redemption. You'll remember that he joined Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey and then he turned back. You can see that story in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. John Mark is described by Paul as one who had withdrawn from them and not gone with them, had not gone with them to the work. So he started the trip with them, and Paul makes it clear he hadn't even reached the field. He hadn't even started to do the work, and he turned back and he went home. But Paul gives specific instruction to the Colossians to welcome John Mark should he come to them. In another place, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul invites this young man back into the work and describes John Mark as being very useful to him for ministry. John Mark had become a helper. So, let's take at least two lessons from John Mark this morning. First, if you've developed a sharp disagreement with another believer, don't let it go on forever. John Mark and ostensibly Barnabas were restored to fellowship and co-labor with Paul. And Paul harbors no resentment. And in fact, he makes sure that others do not withhold care from John Mark either in the instructions he gives the Colossians. And second, if you have failed in some kind of ministry work, as we all have in some measure, if immaturity, fear, sin, or trials have brought about failure in your ministry ambitions, don't lose hope. Don't lose courage. Our life story is more than one chapter long, and Jesus is a redeemer. He is a builder and a shaper of men and women, and He is faithful to complete the work He begins in you, even if you stumble or fall as part of learning and growing along the way. There's reason to be encouraged by John Mark. Well, after these comforters, we have greetings from a number of Gentiles who are in ministry with Paul, and the first of these is Epaphras. He is one of the Colossians and a bond slave of Christ. He was in Rome with Paul, but he's one who had been active among the Colossians, active in ministry there, perhaps as the founder of that local church. Of course, the Colossians getting greetings from Epaphras would be like us getting greetings from, from uh, the Whitmers or from the Dowdies or from the Merits when they were out on the, on the foreign field. They're one of us, greetings from one of us from afar. Well, Epaphras was very special to the Colossians, and if you look back at Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we read, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It was Epaphras who had actually brought Paul and the Colossians together. It was Epaphras who had made this long-distance introduction and brought Paul 
into the missionary care for the Colossians. In Epaphras, we see his one heart with Paul. And his prayers in chapter 4, verse 12, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Those prayers precisely mirrored those of the apostle that we saw back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. What we see of Epaphras is that he was a prayer. He's passionate in his prayers that the Colossians might be mature and complete. You know, and if you ever wonder what to pray for someone, borrow Epaphras' model here. Because there's not a better, I'm not sure there's a better brief prayer in Scripture to pray for your fellow believers that they might stand, might be mature, might be complete, fully assured in all the will of God. In verse 13 of chapter 4, it says that Epaphras worked hard for the Colossians and also for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. How would he have done that? Well, in part, it was as their messenger. He was delivering and communicating uh, as well, but, but also as a pastor, an evangelist, a church planter, as their co-laborer in the gospel. This is how gospel ministry works. The Lord works through people, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In a similar way, Paul and Epaphras were co-laborers in the gospel with the Colossian church. We too are co-laborers with our many missionaries, those who are sent out on our behalf to minister the gospel of Christ to the various ends of the earth. Epaphras was a prayer and a co-laborer. All right, ready for a couple more? We come to two more men in the list, Luke and Demas. Well, Luke is described as the beloved physician. He is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. To say that Luke was a frequent traveling companion of Paul's would be a bit of an understatement. He was almost always there and accompanied Paul on any number of arduous journeys involving shipwreck, shipwreck and persecution and, and imprisonment. He was, but he was always in the background. We don't, we don't have any stories of Luke preaching or teaching or evangelizing, although he may have done those things. Always in the background, he was Paul's partner. And when everybody else was gone, for various reasons, good or bad, as we see in other letters, Luke remained with Paul. We can imagine that there was a strong bond of friendship between these two men and a deep sense of fellowship. Always in the background, Luke was also doing important work. He was a writer. And while none of us are going to be adding additional content for the New Testament, don't underestimate the value of writing and correspondence when it comes to caring for and encouraging other people, particularly in our digital age. Of course, it can be digital communication, but writing something down means a lot. When it comes to caring for or encouraging other people, sharing the gospel with family or friends, expressing other care, keeping track of personal or family history as it pertains to the kingdom. And when Paul commands the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom... It's hard to imagine anyone for whom this would have been more true than Luke, who was busy writing a couple books of the Bible, right? Well, Demas, too, was another man laboring with Paul in Rome. 
a man who later fell, in, fell away from the ministry and perhaps even from the faith. Demas is a cautionary tale. Paul says of Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. If Paul's assessment was accurate, Demas had lost sight of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We saw there that Paul exhorted the Colossians to have a heavenly mind, to not be obsessed with earthly things, but to focus on things above, to pursue a, a conscious immersion in his fellowship with Christ, to be enveloped, to be enthralled, to be engaged in him and things above. Demas had fallen prey to some kind of worldly affections. The Apostle John warned in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, but love for the Father is not in him. All of 2 Timothy could conceivably be mined for context for what happened to Demas. We don't know what temptation he fell victim to. But just like all of us, Demas was a lover. The question is, what will we love first, the Lord or the world? Will we be a lover of God or a lover of self? Will we be a lover of Christ or a lover of earthly things? When we come to verse 15, Paul sends greetings to the brethren who are in Laodicea, a neighboring church, and Paul requests that they exchange the letters that they're receiving from him. And it's interesting that while these were addressed to specific audiences, they were essentially written as open letters uh, to multiple churches. There's nothing exclusive or secret about what Paul was writing here. Uh, you also come to see some of the common fellowship that these churches had with one another, common relationships they that they share with one another with Paul and their common obedience to Christ. There seemed to be healthy relationships here. They were, they were neighbors, if you will, although that doesn't make the list. There were also greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, this woman was a host of a local church in her home after a New Testament pattern, and this church presumably met in Colossae or nearby. And this must have been more than a short-term thing for Paul to have written about it and known about it from afar. Nympha was a committed hostess. She was a server. She was committed to being hospitable, to having folks in her home on a regular basis, doubtless doing something to welcome them, to feed them, to care for them. Uh, Nympha is a Greek name, and it refers to the nymphs or to mythological women who were identified with nature, with woods and streams, uh, with reference to fertility, and often, though not always, but often associated with sexually promiscuous behavior. The nymphs were lesser goddesses in this you know, expansive Greek pantheon, part of a whole universe of idolatry in which the Colossians had grown up. And we can assume that Nympha was born into a Greek family, and it brings to mind what many of the Colossian believers may very well have been called out of in Colossians 3.5. When they're admonished to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is adultery. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
So we don't know enough about Nympha to speculate about her life in particular, but we do know that Christ had made of Nympha and the church in her house a group of worshipers. As it says in Colossians 1.13, the Lord had delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom they have redemption. Well, this is exciting in the context of the New Testament. Do you remember what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well? In John 4.23, He says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father sought worshipers in Colossae, and He found Nympha and the church in her, in her home, this little church. Well, as I started today, we talked about how Colossians can be viewed as moving from the very broad to the very particular, from this the expansive nature of Christ as creator and upholder of the universe to this general behavior His rule requires of faithful believers to the specific behavior of believers in different stations and roles in life and right into the lives of the individual believers that we've been looking at this morning. So, but finally, we come to one particular singled out individual. The spotlight is on Archippus. So how many of you are comfortable having your name mentioned in front of a large group of people? Raise your hands. How many of you are uncomfortable raising your hands in front of a large group of people? <laughs> Most of you, okay. Well, here's a man whose name was brought, in, brought up in front of a large group of people. In fact, his name has been called out in front of the entire church throughout all of church history, Archippus. In the second last Second to last verse of the epistle. You know, it's, it's almost an afterthought. Like, oh, by the way, very important. Or like maybe Paul had wondered whether he should say anything or not. And you have to wonder how Archippus must have felt or responded when he heard these lines. Was he surprised to be mentioned? Uh, was he uh, perhaps disappointed that up to that point he hadn't been included in the conversation? I don't know. Or perhaps... Perhaps given the instructions, perhaps he was relieved. <laughs> Maybe he thought he'd, he'd gotten by without, uh, without being called out by Paul. So here's this greeting to Archippus. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And this, this statement comes out even more pointed in the New, New International Version where it says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you've received in the Lord. Well, apparently an entire letter of theology, general instruction, and encouragement was not sufficient for the apostle to address whatever this particular issue was with Archippus. Paul remembers him and singles him out. Archippus is mentioned in one other place in Scripture. He is mentioned in the second verse of Philemon where he is called a fellow soldier. Many believe he may actually be the son of of Philemon and Aphia, who were mentioned in that same verse. And those verses describe this Christian family and the church that met in their house, the Colossian church. In any case, he was a brother who had been ministering in Colossae in Epaphras' absence, perhaps pastoring, teaching, leading, working closely with Philemon. 
As a fellow soldier, perhaps he had already endured difficult circumstances in ministry. Just as Paul exhorts Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I don't think you'd earn that moniker from Paul without having been in a couple battles. But this message is different from anything else Paul says to or about the other people in this chapter. You know, up to this point, it's, it's all greetings and hugs and kisses and fellowship. And, but at this point, the, the message is a little different. You might just imagine the scene as this letter is read, read in the church. And can, I can imagine everybody turning around looking at Archippus there in the back row uh, as the letter is read. So... What was the Apostle Paul directing toward Archippus? Was it reproof? Was it a rebuke? Did his face turn red with embarrassment or anger that he'd been called out specifically by the Apostle? Or was it perhaps encouragement, an expression of support from Paul for this work Archippus was doing? Maybe he smiled with joy and satisfaction that Paul had made mention of him. Uh, there's not. We don't have a whole lot to work with here. It's a little quick. Cryptic. I believe it's a little bit of both, but I think it is much more a warning, perhaps a preemptive warning, more than an encouragement. The only parallel we have in Colossians to this language in, in the letter is, is in Colossians 2.8, where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That, of course, is clearly a warning. So most commentators, and myself included, are the opinion that Archippus was somehow not fulfilling the ministry or at risk of not fulfilling the ministry that he had received in the Lord. And that's why the apostle made mention of him here. This admonition to take heed suggests there were issues or potential hazards in view. You know, and there's a kind of sternness to it, uh, almost a scolding with a pointed finger. Now, Archippus? Everywhere else this word is used, it's a warning, meaning to look out for dangers and to be vigilant warning about external or perhaps internal threats to his ministry calling. And it's a different in character from the, other, the otherwise similar encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, where he said, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There's no warning in that for, for Timothy. So what was the issue? You know, was he perhaps uh, distracted by other things? Did he have his priorities confused? Was he afraid of additional persecution? Was he tempted to sin? I don't sense a doctrinal issue in this exhortation, but rather sense an issue that had to do with his motivation, with his attitude, with his zeal, maybe his effectiveness, his perseverance. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he just wasn't growing, wasn't excelling, wasn't embracing his calling. So right here in front of God and everybody, the apostle exhorts and reproves Archippus. Now, look at this too, though, because Paul's actually addressing this to the whole church. He's not saying this to Archippus. He's telling the church to say this to Archippus, and not just the Colossian church, but also the Laodicean church, who's also going to get the same letter. You know, so I can imagine Archippus arriving at church the next Sunday. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Bob says, hey, Archie, how are you? How are... You know, I wanted to remind you to take heed to the ministry that you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Archippus would say, thank you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that encouragement. 
moving into the into the auditorium, and oh, there's Mary. Hey, Mary, how are you doing? Uh, how, how was that event you were involved in this week? Oh, great, great, Archippus. It's good to see you. You know, Archippus, I want to remind you to take heed to the ministry that you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And Archippus would say, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. They might have driven him crazy, but they were, they were just doing what the apostle told him to do. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Challenged though he was, reproved though he was, Archippus had received a ministry. He was a minister. And if you're in Christ, so are you. So if the Lord tells us to take heed this morning, He's saying, pay attention. What is distracting or holding you back from the ministry I have for you? God's calling us to self-examination and evaluation of what we're doing. What, what are we doing with the time, the life, the energy, the interests, and the gifts that He's given us? You know, I've preached this passage before, and I have totally neglected the last verse. I've said nothing of the Apostle Paul when coming to the close. But here is a brother who fulfilled his ministry he writes, he writes the final verses in his own hand and then says, remember my chains. I can imagine that as he picked up the pen and sought to write, the shackles were in the way. He was ever mindful of his imprisonment. But he says this in Colossians 1, 24 and 25, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. He received a ministry given to him for you to make the Word of God fully known. He did a lot of filling up what was lacking, so much so that he could say in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. What was Paul? He was a finisher. I don't know what ministry you've received in the Lord, but here on the screen are a whole lot of different possibilities. It's not a comprehensive list by any means, but to be clear, all of us are called to do some of these things. All of us are called to be lovers of God, to be worshipers. Don't ever underestimate the value of our fulfillment of those roles, the expression of our personal love for God, and our heartfelt and passionate worship of Him when we gather together may be one of the most important things that we share together. But as we come to the end of this study in Colossians, I ask you, what kind of ministry has Christ called you to? Ministry doesn't, doesn't require or imply a special call, doesn't exclude it, but it doesn't require one. Ministry is whatever God has given you to do, whatever it is. It's not complicated. If He's made you a helper or a messenger or an encourager, do it. You know, ministry is applied in Scripture to the saints we're in Hebrews 6.10, it says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work 
and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. This is something all of us participate in. Everyone has the opportunity to be involved. And there's much to do to build up the body of Christ, to serve the needs of one another and the needs of those around us. There is no lack of opportunity in that, in that vein. The essence of ministry is not about church positions or offices or roles or titles, but it's about being involved in personal relationship with one another in the body of Christ. I encourage you to refer to the, the relational commitments for Grace Bible Church that we've wrote, written up, that, you, that new members read as we, and hopefully regular members read from time to time. It's a wonderful narrative presentation, an expansion of what it means to live in community together. Consider the one another's of Scripture. Take heed. Pay attention. This is what ministry is all about. This is why Epaphras prayed so fervently that the Colossians would stand fully assured in all the will of God. He wanted them to understand the will of God. He wanted them to understand their gifts and their place in it and to walk in it faithfully. That's the elder's desire for all of you here at Grace Bible Church as well, that you would be complete. And stand fully assured in all the will of God. Paul was also clear that maturity grows from walking with Christ, from sending our roots down into Christ daily, faithfully, habitually, and then being built up in Him and established in the faith with thanksgiving. So each of these ten saints, plus Paul, and with the exception of Demas, were active in growing in ministry and fulfilling their ministry. Even Demas was at the time of the writing. So let me give you just a few gentle principles of application for this passage. The first is be faithful to pay attention. How are you living your life? Are you investing it for eternity? Is your mind set on things above? Are you more taken with the glory that streams from heaven afar or with the things that stream on your electronic device. Make the most of the time for the days are evil. Come and worship. Examine yourself. Even in this time, yield to God's will for your life. Second, be faithful to do the right things. Are you doing the ministry God has for you with the people He's placed you with to know and to serve? Third, be faithful with your talents and your gifts. These are what you've received and should be using in ministry. And finally, be faithful to persevere to the end by grace. Fulfill your ministry. If you've stepped back, if you step back to the sideline, consider being like John Mark, who was restored to the ministry and to service. Don't be like Demas, who may have never returned to the work. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, It's a joyous opportunity to work with God in service, in love, and in the gospel. And I'm so thankful that it is God's grace at work within us to make us useful to Him and to others, to faithfully complete the work He's begun in us. There's nothing like the work God does in the hearts of people through ministry of every kind, and you can be a part of it. Pray with me.